Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So here we are on Christmas Eve, a special night, a holy night. The presents are wrapped, cards are sent or posted to social media, whatever you do. Um, the roast is in the oven. I'm sure you've been to Costco this week. It's the new big thing in Athens, right? Here we are on Christmas Eve in the bleak, cold midwinter as darkness descends on this little congregation and a beautiful borrowed sanctuary. And we gather again to hear the message of the angels. A story many of us know inside and out that God himself has come to dwell with us. Tonight we gather around the nativity, this makeshift nursery of our majestic Lord to celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Savior. We gather with awe and with reverence to unwrap this great gift that has come to us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We've been walking and waiting through the season of Advent, preparing for this day, this night, the beginning of this Christmas season, this beautiful season together, and now that waiting is over. It's finally over. Those who walked in darkness are bathed in glorious light. Tonight, we celebrate the humble rescue operation of God Almighty. God extends his favor God extends his peace to people who have done nothing to deserve it through this holy infant child. I've often said on Christmas Eve that babies change everything before they do anything. And we know this to be true in our own lives and families, but it's, it's extraordinary to contemplate, to be aware of all that is set in motion by the birth of our Lord. Salvation has appeared. It's certain. I mean, it will be fully and finally revealed. We await that day. But think about it. Before Christ had given any teaching, any miracle, before his death, before his mighty resurrection, though there's foreshadowing of that in the Christmas stories, salvation has begun. Salvation has appeared in this holy infant child. As we contemplate the holy nativity, the baby in the manger, the holy family. Let's look briefly at this passage from Luke 2, our gospel lesson. Um, and just a disclaimer, I, I've been to Christmas Eve services where the preacher's goal is explanation. Um, and, and like a theology lecture, they explain uh, historic Christian doctrines like the virgin birth um, or the incarnation of Jesus. Um, well and good, that's great. Um, or they do this incredible long Bible study. Let's show how the birth of Jesus fulfilled any and every promise God had made to his people. Um, and we'll do a little bit of that tonight. Teaching has its place. Explanation is important. But that's not our main goal on Christmas Eve. See, there's an invitation for each one of us to come and adore the Lord. Our goal tonight is not explanation, it's adoration. 
to worship the one who came for you and for me, to worship the one who is here with us right now by the Holy Spirit, who will meet you if you will let him. Our goal tonight is adoration. And so we're going to look at Luke 2. I want to just trace the curious method of uh, God and the glorious message of the gospel that invites our worship, that invites adoration, not only with our lips, but in our lives. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, God's uh, curious method. Um, And if you're familiar uh, with the New Testament, there are four different gospels, four different accounts of the life of Jesus. Each one has its own energy, um, its own emphasis. It's, It's trying to make a specific point. For example, the Gospel of John, it actually shows us the birth of Jesus from the perspective of heaven's throne room. Uh, God makes sure we realize that the crying infant in the makeshift crib was divinity in diapers. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. Uh, We believe that the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son eternally begotten of the Father, fully divine, fully human, came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. See, this is so key. There's actually a bishop in the fourth century, uh, a French bishop. He said, I will not endure to hear that Christ was born of Mary, unless I also hear in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You see, we hold together this great mystery that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, From one true angle and from another equally true angle, Luke 2, verse 7, she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Now, this is an odd way for God to bring about salvation, to send a child, a helpless infant. That's not what they wanted. That's not what they were looking for. Uh, Frankly, it's not a very practical way to get things done, as you might know if you've been around a baby lately. Bishop N.T. Wright says the point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and all of its apparent weakness and insignificance and vulnerability. If you want to look at God's methods, God's ways, it's a baby. Vulnerable, insignificant, weak. The confrontation between that way and the kingdoms of this world who prize strength and brutality and the appearance of might. And into this messy world of politics and power of Herods and Caesars, we have a baby in a manger. Um, There's this reflection by an early church father named Theodotus. And I'm going to read it for you in its entirety because it's incredible to think about why in the world would God fulfill all of his promises? Would God uh, confront the powers of this world Would God save you and me through a baby born to this family at this time and this place? Here's what he says. The Lord of all comes as a slave amidst poverty. 
choosing for his birthplace an unknown village in a remote province. He is born of a poor maiden and accepts all that poverty implies. You see, if he had been born to high rank and amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said the world had been transformed by wealth. If he had chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, they would have thought transformation had been brought by civil power. Suppose he had been the son of an emperor, they would say how useful to be powerful. Imagine him the son of a senator. They would have said, look what can be accomplished through politics. Look what can be accomplished through legislation. But in fact, what did he do? What was God's curious method? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple. So ordinary as to be almost unnoticed so that people would know that it was God himself. God Almighty that had changed the world. This was his reason for choosing his mother from among the very poor of a very poor country and for becoming poor himself. It's a strange way to do things, but it's God's way, and his ways are not our ways. And so to understand all of this, we get the message of the angels, God's glorious message in verses 8 through 20. Um, Deacon Joanne read the, the entire passage for us what we probably think of as the Linus passage uh, from Charlie Brown. But after this simple kind of, you know, just the facts, ma'am, account of the birth and the first seven verses, Luke's going to help us understand it. Luke's going to help us make sense of it all. Luke gives us a full Christmas pageant uh, with song and angels and shepherds and the Virgin Mary, Mother Mild. In verse 8, look at it. We come across a group of shepherds. They're out in the fields watching over their flock. Verse 9 tells us an angel of the Lord appeared around them. Uh, the glory of the Lord blazed, and they were terrified. Of course they were. You'd be scared too if an angel of the Lord appeared. Um, and then we see the glorious message of the angels. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You can imagine the shepherds, if they've recovered from their fear, going, what in the world are they talking about? This came out of nowhere and woke us up from our slumber. How do we even know what this angel is saying is true? The angel says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The baby. God's curious method. God's glorious Message, it's the baby that's the sign, confirming everything the angel has said that the long awaited Savior had finally been born. Um, and of course, there are signs throughout the Christmas stories. The virgin is a sign, the star is a sign, the manger, the swaddling claws, they're signs. But all of this points to and lifts up and highlights the main sign the baby, the child the Lord Jesus in the manger. Um, and I actually love the way Luke puts together the first few chapters of his gospel. I mean, if you haven't read um, one of the gospels, um, I would encourage you to do so. Start with Luke. Start with chapter one and see what is the story of this Jesus? Especially if someone drug you here tonight. I know that happens uh, on Christmas. 
Um, but earlier in Luke chapter 1, look how this story builds. Um, this isn't the first angel we've seen in Luke. In Luke 1, an angel appears to a priest. His name is Zechariah. And he says, your wife, your old barren wife, is going to have a son. And they announced the birth of John the Baptist. Um, side note, the priest, he did not respond well <laughs> to the angel. <laughs> um, and we get that scene. Um, just a few verses later in Luke 1, another angel appears. Look how it keeps building. This time we get the name of the angel. The angel is Gabriel. And he appears to Mary. Uh, this virgin who is betrothed to a man named Joseph says, you're going to have a baby. His name is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be the Savior. Side note, she responds very well, <laughs> indeed. Um, the contrast between the religious leader, the priest in the temple, uh, missing the mark, and this young woman hitting the mark is uh, to be discerned. It's intentional. Luke wants us to see um, that contrast. And now we have another angel. This angel appears to these shepherds with another message to let them know what's happening. But look how the scene expands. Before we even hear what the angels think, we get verses 13 through 14. Previously, God sent one messenger. Now the skies erupt in praise. There's not just one angel. There's a whole choir. And they're singing this beautiful song. What we would know as Gloria in excelsis Deo, the song of the angels. Honestly, um, the first two chapters of Luke are like Luke's little version of lessons and carols. And we had lessons and carols last week where you have a passage and a song, a passage and a song. I think we learned that from the gospel of Luke. That's the entire first two chapters, passages, song, passage, song, to help us make sense of it. You've got, you know, you have four songs in the first two chapters of Luke. Mary's song, the Magnificat, her response to the angels. Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, his joyful response to finally John the Baptist being born. The song of the angels here in Luke 2, our text today. And a little bit later is the song of Simeon. The old priest who's been waiting and promised, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. And he holds the infant Jesus. And he essentially says, I can die in peace because my eyes have seen salvation and seen God fulfill his promise. It's just lessons and carols. No wonder this is a, a season for song and hymns and carols. We get that from Luke chapters 1 and 2. Luke 2, 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's stop there for just a moment. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace with God's created world. Peace with ourselves. This holy infant child comes bringing salvation and bringing peace. The peace that only God can give what incredibly good news that true peace and true redemption has come. Again, the terror of the shepherds, that's natural, but it gives way to joy. And they run, they, they run with haste and they find everything the angels had told them. They find Mary, they find the baby in the manger, the Lord Jesus, and they're ecstatic. And the emphasis throughout all of this, I think, 
is on, look what God has done. Look how God has fulfilled his promise. Look how God is saving his people. He has acted decisively for us, not because of what we have done, but rather in spite of it. Whether you're Zechariah and you responded terribly, God's salvation is for you. And we hear Zechariah singing. Whether you're Mary and you responded well, God's salvation is for you. And we hear Mary singing. Whether you're of the highest uh, ruling class, salvation is for you. We hear them singing. Whether you are the shepherds, the lowest of the low, the ones no one paid attention to, <laughs> God takes time to speak to you first so that you can sing and rejoice at this thing that God has done, this glorious good news. Tim Keller, the retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, once said, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe and more loved than you ever dared hope. You see, in the birth of this one holy child, we see the potential for redemption, for salvation, for new births for everyone. Corey Ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place, um, she was a, a Dutch Christian during World War II, and her family took in and cared for uh, Jewish citizens, um, and she actually paid a, a pretty severe price for it. Corey Ten Boom once said, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. I want to make sure this is clear because it's so tempting um, to keep God at arm's length during Christmas. Um, to write this all off as a, you know, a Christmas card or cheesy music in the supermarket, a Hallmark movie. And to an extent, I, I get that. Um, you know, sometimes God seems like jolly old St. Nick, right? This nice escape, grandfatherly, distant, only showing up once a year. That system seems pretty fair. If you're good, you get goodies. If you're not, you get coal. And if that's your image of God, that's what you think of when you think about the Lord, um, then your vision is one who keeps a list and, and checks it twice and gives you exactly what you deserve. But that's not what we have in the Gospel of Luke. That's not what we have in the New Testament or in Christianity. Um, we never get what we deserve. We get grace. We receive peace. We receive forgiveness. We receive the love and presence and power of God. And Luke makes us realize right here at the beginning, the baby is the point. And the message of the angels comes to the least and the lost and the lonely, the, the shepherds. This frightened young mother Weary travelers under the Roman boot. You saw the little timestamp. Caesar said, go, and they went. That's how life worked for them. And yet here in Luke 2, everything shifts. The world tilts on its axis as God enters the story in a new and specific way. And then the last few verses, the shepherds, they find that first nativity scene ever assembled and they come away from the encounter glorifying and praising God for all they have heard and seen. Friends, those shepherds, they received God's revelation. They beheld the incarnation and they responded with adoration. 
with praise. They're amazed at who God is and what he has done. And one thing I love about the way Luke tells this story is he actually echoes that prophecy from Isaiah 9 that Donna read for us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That sounds just like the angels. But look at that fuller prophecy. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, And I think a lot of times we uh, focus on those names. Um, We actually had a great activity this Advent where our families, um, we did a, a name of Jesus each day. Maybe you did that with your family, the resource that our team had put together. But we sometimes go from, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, to the names of Jesus. And there's this little thing in the middle that's curious and odd. The government shall be upon his shoulder. What in the world do you think that means? What does it mean for the government to be upon his shoulder? For the sign of his rule and reign to be on his shoulder. What's happening with this? One of our church fathers, Tertullian, here's what he said reflecting on this. We're almost done. He said, what king is there who bears uh, the sign of his dominion upon his shoulder? That's weird. That's not where you show rank and power on your shoulder. He says, no, you show that on your head as a crown. Or you hold it in your hand as a scepter. Or maybe somewhere on your clothes it's apparent. He says, the one new king of the new ages, Jesus Christ, carried on his shoulder both the power and the excellence of his new glory, even his cross. That's what's on his shoulder. That's how he shows his rule, his rank, what he is all about, the cross on his shoulder Tertullian continues, so that according to our former prophecy, he might thenceforth reign from the tree as Lord. What a curious method that God would send a baby to save the world. One who would eventually reign from the tree as Lord, stretching out his arms on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of his saving embrace. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.